There we go. As soon as I clear my throat, the mic works. It's like a clap on light. The cross was enough. <clears throat> Let's celebrate that as we come to God in prayer. Asking him to bless the reading and proclamation of his word. Father God, we thank you and praise you because we believe and we profess as your people that the cross was enough. That there's nothing we do or can do to add to our holiness, to add to our purity, to add to the redemptive work that is necessary. The cross was enough. Father, help us to see and to celebrate your goodness to us this morning as we open up your word in the Old Testament and the New, and as we hear it proclaimed. In Jesus' name and by the Holy Spirit's power we pray. Amen. This morning we're continuing uh, those last three reforms that Nehemiah implemented. <clears throat> last week we looked at Sabbath. This week we're looking at purity. And I think uh, the, the worship team had picked such a beautiful song to lead us into that, to say the cross was enough, because uh, that, that just sets up this folk, or sets up my focus on our sermon on God's word this morning, looking at purity. And so invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them with you, or if there's one in the pew, otherwise you can follow along on the screen. And we're going to read together Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 29. We've, uh, Nehemiah, as I said, implemented these three final, <clears throat> three final reforms. And so this is the second one. It says, moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married men of a women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and half the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, like Solomon. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear, or must we hear now that you too are doing this terrible wickedness and all being unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eli Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. And then Nehemiah ends with this prayer. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So far, the reading of God's word. <clears throat> As we begin the message this morning, I want to just acknowledge that it's easier to skip passages like this, isn't it? It's easier to skip them uh, because perhaps they seem confusing or difficult. We mark them as irrelevant or outdated and move on. But we're not doing that this morning, and we're not doing that for a few reasons. The first is that it's in Scripture, and we believe that Scripture is God-breathed and that it still speaks to us today if and when we have ears to hear and second, because we always 
have difficult conversations in our lives. We continue to face difficult topics in our world and have difficult conversations coming up as a church. It's no good to bury our heads in the sand and to ignore our discomfort until it goes away. Because it doesn't. And it won't. So here we go. What is Nehemiah 13 about? And what might God be saying to us, to River Park Church, this morning? As I said throughout this series on rebuilding, God's intention in gathering his people back to the land was not to build them some buildings or to establish them in a certain place. God's intention was to draw his people back to relationship with himself. And as God's people still today, we know and we celebrate that we have a unique identity as God's people. And we see throughout scripture that the identity always comes with responsibility. This is most true and most obvious in our biological families. A father who says to his, to his children, remember, you are a Delang. Remember, you are a Lee. You're a Miller. Part of being, being part of the family means that you have a family identity. The responsibility of God's people in the Old Testament of the Israelites which was, a, which was a very broad extended family, right? But always goes back to Israel, to Jacob. It was a family that was broken up into different tribes and different clans. That was their identity. They were the people of Israel and most, uh, most importantly, the people of God. Their responsibility was to be devoted to God. That's what it meant for them to be the people of Israel. It meant that they were totally and completely devoted to God. But they also lived in an ancient world where other peoples and other families were devoted to other gods. And so what seems to be a difficult or a confusing text to those in our congregation in an individualistic culture, who come from an individualistic culture, say, oh, I should be able to marry who I want. It might make a lot more sense, this text, to those of us in our congregation who come from a more collectivist culture, where community is valued over an individual. Because the idea in the Old Testament is that people don't just forsake their family and make personal decisions about who to worship or how to live their own lives. That's not done in the Old Testament. It's impossible to do. So an Israelite woman who married into a Canaanite family would move into Canaanite homes where Canaanite gods were worshipped. Likewise, a Midianite man, or a Midianite woman, excuse me, who married an Israelite man would take her own gods with her into, into her new home, into the Israelite home, and she would worship them there. You don't just forsake your family or your gods and make a personal decision to do something else. We see this, this story, this reality of, of community at work all throughout the Old Testament. One of the prime examples is the story of Jacob when he marries both Rachel and Leah. And as they're traveling from where they were back to Israel, they find out that Rachel and Leah have both smuggled with them the gods that they worshipped back at home. But this is uh, this reality we also see in the story of Ruth in a different way. If you know the story of Ruth, that then her words to her mother-in-law Naomi would be a shock to, to the ancient Israelites in a way that they're not a shock to us. Ruth was a Moabite woman 
who had married an Israelite man, and then he had died, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, was going to return to Israel. And Ruth said to her, your people will be my people. That's a shock to ancient Israelites. And what's more, your God will be my God. That's unheard of. That just doesn't happen in the Old Testament. People, or, or people don't just make individual decisions to forsake their family, to forsake their religion or their faith. So perhaps we understand a little more fully, just even in the introduction here, that what Nehemiah's priority is not first about ethnicity or about people from different ethnic groups or cultural groups marrying. Nehemiah's priority is about religious purity, about being devoted to God, being fully and wholly devoted to God. So perhaps if we wanted to make a New Testament comparison, Nehemiah's call to purity might be very similar to Paul's words to the New Testament church. When he says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, Nehemiah, what, what Nehemiah is demanding and what he goes after. So what seems again aggressively to us, even pulling people by the hair. Nehemiah demands that the Israelite community's identity and their responsibility that they fit together. That their identity as God's people match their responsibility to be totally and exclusively dedicated to God. Even when, and especially perhaps, when it's difficult. Still, we might ask, why purity? Why be pure? Of, of all the things that Nehemiah could have implemented, these, these th different reforms that he could have brought, why was purity so important. Well, in a word, impure people feel shame. This is another large biblical theme of purity and impurity, honor and shame. And I have a short video, just about a minute, that's going to introduce us to this, to a perhaps a little deeper understanding of shame. You know what? Shame is real. Shame is something that we all deal with. Throughout our lives, people have imputed those words of, you know what, you're a loser. Uh, you don't have a father, you're ugly, or you're so stupid. Shame is not just about making a mistake. Shame is the statement that you are a mistake. And there's no good news. There's, doesn't, there's no good news. There, doesn't matter how many times they'll tell you, hey, you're not guilty. Again, shame is not a thought, shame is a feeling. So if you're unclean, so if, you, if you're just dirty all the time, if you feel naked all the time, and there's no promise or word of forgiveness that can really penetrate your shameful heart, is there any hope? Yes. In fact, it comes with a great call. Jesus is the one thought I cut that better. Sorry. <clears throat> I hope you heard in the video, it said shame is a feeling. Shame is not about making a mistake. It's about saying you are, feeling that you are a mistake. 
Impure people feel shame. The problem that all of us have is that we don't first hear or understand the gospel when we're infants or when we're innocent, if we ever, if we ever were. We hear the gospel after we're already impure. As he said, we're already dirty. We've already done something. We already feel uncomfortable as if we don't fit or we don't belong or something's wrong with us. Is there any hope? What can we do? Not, 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 what can we do if we are already impure? If we're already dirty and naked and ashamed? That's a feeling that I think many of us feel. No matter if we're from a more communal culture or a more individualistic culture. No matter what we do, no matter what we think... It's hard to face those feelings of impurity, of shame, of feeling like something's wrong with me. Not that just, not that just I've done something wrong, but that I am something wrong. Parents often tell our children some version of 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. But in Jesus Christ, In the New Testament, we see that the opposite is true as well. That the bad company and the the world around us, the friends we keep, can can feed into that shame. As as the man said in the video, can tell us that we're we're ugly or we're dirty or, or we don't belong. But in Jesus, the opposite is true as well. That when we invite the perfect and pure person of Jesus Christ to rule over our lives, that when we invite the spirit of Christ to live in our hearts, then his purity and his perfection overflows into us. And even from us into others. And so a being pure is not just what we need to do, Not just our responsibility, in other words, as God's people. Being pure is actually a part of our identity in Christ. That's a part of who we are. Somebody said once that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Recognizing that the journey of salvation is a past, a present, and a future uh, has, has those aspects to it. And in the same way, I think we might say that I have been made pure, I am being made pure, and I will be made pure. That as we continue to walk through life at different times and in different ways, we need to remind ourselves, or not just remind ourselves, we need to draw near to Jesus at different times and in different ways. To be cleansed, to be pured, to be forgiven. To to feel and experience the honor and the glory and the holiness of God once again. Filling us, flowing into us, and even overflowing out from us. Too often we try to live as pure people of God because we know that the people of God are characterized by devotion to God. We try and do it in our own strength. And we also, we know that anyone brought into that family, or or we understand even from this, uh, from my explanation this morning, I hope, that anyone brought into that family who's devoted to someone else or something else jeopardizes the integrity and the witness of the whole family. 
But our impurity, our brokenness as God's people is not the end of the story. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And just pause for a moment there. Can you find yourself on that list? Even just the last four, greedy, drunk, slanderers, right? Saying something that's untrue about someone else that's hurtful to them. Or swindling, taking someone from something else by tricking them. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But look what Paul says here. That is what some of you were. Not that's who you are, that is who you were. But you are washed. What do you do with something that's impure? You wash it. You clean it. Right? You are washed, Paul says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were glorified. Those last two, especially, sanctified and glorified, have become these sort of $10 theological words that we might well use more often than not, but we don't really understand what they mean. We might even understand that sanctification or being sanctified and being justified are the two parts that Reformed Christians talk about that are part of salvation. But do we know what, what Paul is really saying here? Well, to be sanctified is to be made holy. It's to be set apart for a special purpose. And to be justified is to be restored into right relationship or good standing with God. So Paul says, you used to be shameful and impure. You used to be devoted to or contaminated by uh, something other than God. But now... In Christ, you have been restored to right relationship with God, that's justification, and set apart for a special purpose. That's sanctification. But it's, the, the purpose isn't just to become holy. The pur- that already happened, Paul says. You've already been set in right relationship with God. You don't have to try to, be, to become clean or become clean enough to be in God's presence. So what is the purpose that we're set apart for? What's the responsibility that God has for his people that goes along with the identity that he has given us? Well, Revelation shows us what that purpose is. In in, uh, Revelation 5, John, the apostle, has this vision of the throne room in heaven. We talked about a few more, a few weeks ago, right? Where there's no longer any temple. This is, this is God. God is the temple and God is the light. And John sees God in his throne room. And he sees this massive crowd of people and the elders and the living creatures and the angels all gathered around the throne. And all of them together are singing a new song. And this is what the song said. You are worthy. They're speaking to Jesus, the lamb on the throne. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, 
because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons, people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them all to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Right? That's, this is what God has done. Justified and, and, and sanctified people from every different tribe and language and people and nation. Right? Paul, the, the problem of the Old Testament is not the ethnic separation, but religious devotion to God. And John says, you made all these different people from all these tribes and languages and people and nation. And each of them, all of them devoted to you. You made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then John says, I looked and I heard the voices of many angels, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne with the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. There's that honor again. What is our purpose? What has God given us to do? Well, very, that, that, very simply, he's given us the responsibility to join with that heavenly choir, to proclaim the goodness and the, the, all of these attributes of Jesus. The, his power, his wealth, his wisdom, his strength, his honor, his glory, and his praise. He's worthy of them all. As a side note, that word that's translated worthy in the, in the Greek just means holy. It means pure, set apart. And our purpose as God's people is to proclaim the worthiness of Christ, both with our mouths, as we do on Sunday morning when we're gathering together and singing, but also with our lives. What we so often tend to misunderstand is that we, we, again, think that somehow or for somehow our, our goodness and our good actions will spur others on to be good too. That somehow if we try hard enough or if we just push ourselves a little more, then other people will see the goodness in us. But we need to remember who we are. As Paul says, right? There's, there's many things that we were, but we have been washed. We've been justified. We've been holy. We've been uh, justified. We've been sanctified. It's not our job to point other people to, to me or to us and say, look how good I am. Look how, how much good we're doing. It's our job to point people to Jesus. Say, look at the good that Christ has done in my life. Look at the good that he has done in our church. Look at the good that he has done in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world. We tend to, to make the mistake of thinking that people will see Jesus in us or that they'll want to come to church when they see us at our best. But it's so often the opposite. People are moved. They're impressed when they see the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us in the ordinary stuff of life, in, in our day-to-day -day lives, and even and especially at our worst. People are moved when they see God, when they see Jesus embodied and glorified in the everyday stuff of life, when they see acts of love and obedience, of forgiveness and humility that are uncommon to humanity, that, that don't uh, originate from us as people, but can only be possible 
through the work of God within his people. And so as we close this morning, I want to give you two pictures or two examples of that purity and that holiness of Jesus that's shared with others. One is a a kind of an example of the everyday stuff of life, and one is an example of a more, uh, a very difficult situation. The first is a picture of a friend in BC who had a block party this past week. That's pretty normal in the summer. I know many of us either have had or are, are hoping to have block parties coming up. And he decided there, along with their friends and family, that they were going to set up, you can see, uh, they were going to set up a food bank donation. So that everybody who came to their block party, they, they wanted to ask them to donate either $5 or an item to this food pantry in their local neighborhood. What they did was very simple. They were having a party anyway. But he wanted to say, look, this is who we, where we see God at work. We see God at work in in the feeding and the clothing of the homeless and those who need need extra food and need extra clothes. And we want to point people to that good news, even as we have this ordinary, wonderful party. It's beautiful. The purity and the holiness of Jesus shared with others, not pointing to us, but pointing to Christ. The second story is a story with a lot more pain and a lot more brokenness, but also a story of a community. Some of you may remember as 15 years ago now, where uh, a young, or a young man, a man in his 30s, uh, went and entered a school where a number of Amish kids were attending. And he sent the teachers and the boys out, and then he shot uh, 10 little girls before he killed himself. It was 2006. And this is a picture, a picture you see behind me. Uh, it's a picture of Terry Roberts, of this, that man's mother. This word behind her on that wall in her sunroom says, forgiven. That word, that, that piece of word art, and actually the whole room itself was built as a gift for her by her Amish neighbors just months after all that happened. Terry's, Terry and her husband thought they'd have to move away. They knew what people thought of parents of mass murderers. They believed that they'd be ostracized from their community, that they'd be blamed for not knowing what their evil their child was capable of. But in the hours after the massacre, as Amish parents were still waiting to hear whether their daughters had survived, One Amish man named Henry arrived at their home with a message. The message was that these Amish families didn't see this couple as an enemy. Rather, they saw them as parents who were grieving the loss of their child, too. Henry put his hand on the shoulder of Terry Roberts' husband and called him a friend. The world watched in amazement. As on the day of their son's funeral, nearly 30 Amish men and women, some of whom were the parents of victims, came to the cemetery and formed a wall to block out the media cameras. Parents whose daughters had died at the hand of their son approached the couple after the the burial and offered condolences for their loss. But the Amish family did more than forgive the couple. 
They built this addition on their home. They embraced this couple as part of the community. When Terry went, underwent surgery for stage four breast cancer this past December, the girls who had survived the massacre helped her clean her home before she returned from the hospital. A large yellow bus arrived at her home on Christmas and a bunch of Amish children piled out and entered her home to sing her Christmas carols. The forgiveness is there, Terry said. There's no doubt that they forgive. Commenting on this, Stephen Nolt, a professor of Amish studies at Elizabeth, Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, said of the people, or said that for most people, forgiveness, right? Forgiveness and acceptance is something that comes at the end of a long emotional process. But the Amish forgave first. And then every day worked through the emotions of it. And he called this decisional forgiveness. I mean, what can you say to a story like that? Just, that's, not, that's not supposed to be possible, right? I can't, I can't even begin to imagine what those families have gone through. But when, when as, as I read, as the world watched in amazement, why did they watch in amazement? Because the, this decisional forgiveness, this decision to forgive is not something that we do as people. It's not something that comes naturally to us. And this Amish community did it not out of their own strength or their own desire. They very simply did it as an overflow of what Christ had done for them. Decisional forgiveness is what God does for us. Before we even existed, before we rebelled, before we knew we were dirty, God decided to share his honor and his purity with us, even though he too had lost a child. Brothers and sisters, may we live in the joy of that holiness and learn to share with others, even as we always point ourselves and our lives to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father God, perhaps we are overwhelmed by the weight of our own guilt, of our own shame. Perhaps we are so uncomfortable with ourselves that it's hard to sit. Sit in this place or sit at home when it feels like everyone else is doing just fine. But God, help us to see that you are at work in our world, bringing purity, bringing forgiveness, bringing wholeness. And help us not just to see, Lord, but to feel the reality of your spirit working in our community, in our church, in our city, in our world, and also in our hearts. Working to purify, to cleanse, to redeem, and to restore, to bring us honor and to bring us life. Help us to see you at work, Lord, and to be overwhelmed by the greatness of your love for us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.